0: Hello, this is episode 235 and this is part two of my conversation with James Cornell from Life Panels. Now, if you have just jumped into this episode straight away and you haven't listened to part one in episode 234, make sure that you do that because this episode will make a lot more sense then. You can hear James talk about uh, thermal performance, understanding air tightness and breathability of your home and uh, other information that we discussed in episode 234. So you can find that by heading. To www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 234. That's the numbers 234. Make sure you listen to that first before jumping into this episode. Now, in this episode, James is going to continue sharing his incredible wealth of knowledge on how to improve your home's building envelope, how to create an energy efficient and thermally comfortable home through the selection of building materials for the floors, the walls, and the roof of your home. And in this episode, we're going to talk about thermal mass, we're going to talk about things such as relative humidity and decrement delay. That may not be terminology you've heard before. James is going to help us understand it. If it sounds bamboozling, never fear. James is really great at boiling it down for us, distilling it so that you understand what it actually means. And frankly, This is awesome knowledge for you to have when you're discussing your home's construction with your team because it's a great way for you to ensure that you're actually getting the best outcome for your location and your climate. To understand what this terminology means, what these things actually achieve in the construction of your home, super, super helpful. Now, remember, if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, uh, there's also information on the resources that we discuss. James has got loads of helpful stuff on his website too. You can grab all of those links. Plus the transcript by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 235. That's the numbers 235. Now, let's dive into the episode. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies, and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in Northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect, and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014 I started Undercover Architect and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands, and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about leveling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious. And you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website, and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take, and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com slash project plan. That's P R O J E C T P L A N. Now, let's get on to the episode. Now, before I jump into part two of my conversation with James Cornell from Life Panels, let me briefly remind you about him. Now, James has actually been an industry expert on the topic of construction and sustainability for over twenty years. He's a licensed builder. He's a master carpenter, he's a passive house certified consultant, and he's become increasingly interested in sustainable construction and the use of materials in creating a better way to build and ultimately live. And you'll see James speaking about these topics, about building sites and about this information in loads of different forums, loads of different ways. He's uh, he's often a keynote speaker at lots of different events. And he actually founded Life Panels in uh 2015 and he supplies wood fibre insulation and building systems for walls, roofs and floors that in particular can assist with passive house design and construction requirements but they're also applicable for any residential project as they enable fast and easy installation using non-toxic products to achieve thermal performance, moisture control and overheating control. Now I kick off this episode by recapping our conversation about moisture control, about woofy analyses and relative humidity, or woofy analyses and <laughs> relative humidity. And James actually shares some information about building steel frame homes because uh, that can often be the go-to when people think, "Oh gosh, if timber's going to absorb moisture and it's going to create mold and dry rot and things like that, I'll just go to steel frame." But There's things to know about steel frame homes and the problems associated with that. So um, because they can pose a fair amount of thermal challenges. So James talks about that with a particular case study of a project that he worked on and supplied product for. And then we also talk about overheating control and how to manage this through your homes building envelope as well. And as a reminder, remember you can grab a free PDF uh, transcript of this episode by and all of the links that we've got by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 235. That's the numbers 235. Yeah, so I'm going to track back because there are a couple of things there that I think were worth touching on. So we had Alex Stewart from Low Tox Life on the podcast a while back, and she was talking about anytime you get over 60% relative humidity, that's conditions that are ripe for mold production. So, you know, her recommendations were, of course, to look at how the building is constructed, but then to look at what dehumidification processes can you have if you've got an existing property you know, getting a dehumidifier, looking at how you utilise that to bring your relative humidity down internally. Um, And also looking at just, um, of course, there's air conditioning units that can have dehumidification as well. Um, But if you're building or renovating, thinking about this in terms of your wall construction and then the mechanical ventilation systems that you utilise, how you design for orientation to manage that natural ventilation. You know, even something as simple as being able to crack open all your windows and get that breeze moving can be enough to knock the humidity out of the air. Um, it's just that simple thing of what are you doing to be aware of this and to measure it so that you understand. Because I think relative humidity is one of those things that. Um, like you say, you're much more comfortable, you know, you can take the boy out of the UK, um, but you, <laughs> you obviously need to 26-degree temperature. So That's why I so. live here and not in the UK. <laughs> so um, whereas others may be, um, may be feeling it less. But, like, I know that when we lived in Brisbane, my tolerance to humidity dramatically increased because, yeah, it kind of had to as part of living there. So, um, you know, having grown up in Sydney, I remember when I first moved there, it felt like I was... Yeah, like the air was so heavy with humidity, it wasn't funny. But, um, uh, it's that thing of understanding that if you're you're not necessarily going to be able to trust your own perception of temperature and humidity to know how your building's performing according to that relative humidity. So having the means by which you can measure it is super helpful. The woofy analysis that you mentioned, so that's a tool that um, gets used uh, sometimes in Passive House, but it can be used by anyone anywhere wanting to uh, do this in their project. Um, You just need to find somebody who's certified in using the tool and knows how to use the tool because what it does is, like you say, take a whole heap of climate data um, and and make it specific to your location, enable you to plug in the wall materials that you're planning to construct from, and it'll show you based on every day of the year exactly where moisture will form in the wall construction so that you can see whether that's going to be uh, beyond the air, the drainage cavity and be problematic and start causing dry rot in your timber and potentially mold production and those kinds of things. So, I think that anybody who is concerned about this factoring in the cost of having that wolfie analysis done is is certainly a worthwhile investment in terms of thinking about that, or working with a builder who understands how to work how to build in your climate region based on real data, um, potentially generated by wolfy analysis that they've explored. So, and the, the thing that um, I'm looking at your notes and the, the information that you've got on your website. So you said materials that are too vapour closed slow the movement of moisture vapour down, which means it builds up in the fabric of the building. At lower temperatures, this will condense into a liquid, which can cause wet rot. And at higher temperatures, this can drive excessive moisture in the timber above 20%, and that can cause dry rot. So really thinking, you know, most of the time we're building from timber frames. Of course, some people might go, oh, well, I'm going to build from steel frames, so I'm totally okay when it comes to this. I'm not going to worry about this at all. But that just means that the moisture is not going to be absorbed by your steel frames. It's actually going to be absorbed into your gyprock yeah. and, and cause problems there anyway. So, well, it's not
1: And, so... and the connections in your steel frame.
0: Yeah, so, good point. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and of course, the steel has a whole other uh, layer of challenges in terms of the frame itself being the thermal bridge between inside and yeah. outside. So, navigating... Well, you've got
1: a great story on that. If oh, it's go okay for it. To, to yeah, go in. for it. Share so, it. So, this is why, to reiterate my point before about the there's not the perfect wall. There's the perfect walls, perfect roofs. There's, there's, a, there's a few different applications and so that's what I like about the woofy analysis and the passive house thing that when you, when you understand the science behind it, you can adapt. So we had a, a job in Adelaide where the clients came and said, you know, we're kind of already committed to a steel shed. Um, it makes financial sense for us where we're at, uh, is it possible to work with it? Now I'm sure some people would have said, ah, oh, no way, forget it. Steel sheds the worst thing you could do. Um, but you know, it. You know, I'd be the first to admit, listen, not everything's perfect. It's not black and white. And, and is it responsible of me to just say nah, if you're not building to what I say, then we're not helping you? Or is it more responsible in terms of a holistic sense uh, to say, actually, it's not going to be perfect, but we can definitely make sure that what you do get in the context you have is is beneficial. So we we ran a full uh, woofy analysis with one of the team that, that I use from the UK from when I used to work there. And um, and we'd done it for the exact location where they're at. We looked at a few different options. You know, we, we tried different thicknesses of OSB sheet. Uh, we looked at all the membranes that were going in. And, and overall, it showed that for, for pretty much all year round, the relative humidity was going to be kept uh, around 60% to 50%. Uh, and I think there was maybe two months in the year where it would go above that. Uh, but that just then highlighted that we could actually use night purge system to drop the temperature um, and and help with the moisture content there. Now they we also realised through that that they could use a HRV system uh, to, with a HEPA filter because they wanted fresh filtered air rather than just kind of you know dust blowing in and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So. The the HRV in that context wasn't necessarily purely just to deal with the moisture inside the building. Um, They didn't need any dehumidification per se. Uh, And I I am choosing these words on on purpose, like per se or necessarily because it showed that overall, the building is protected through the wood fibre insulation. Uh, The moisture content will be manageable. uh, And then the additional things they could do were to put in the HRV system, which they've done to help manage that even, even further. So they've basically taken a, a basic performing building that is still, by the way, you know, way ahead, years ahead of the current building code in Australia. Um, and, it, and it also worked off, the Woofy analysis works off the coldest corner of the house. Um, so the, the results that you get are kind of the worst of the worst so you know that if if we're getting good results off the worst corner of the house, that's like you know the coldest and all the rest of it, and the, the most shaded, uh, then we know that the rest of it is going to work. And so that just to just to pick up again on that sixty percent relative humidity, also it, if an internal surface of your wall hits around twelve point six degrees, that's also a prime spot where mold can develop. So when you it's when you kind of get the perfect blend of factors, so like 12.6 degrees, relative humidity at 60%. Then you kind of really, you know, pushing push to the edge of creating a problem. So what's good with the woofy analysis is that it works off, it uses that kind of information to see, okay, on the whole, we're looking at the coldest corner of the house, close to the floor is gonna be 13 degrees. So generally we know it's okay. But I always actually recommend a little thermometer you can get off Amazon or any you can get them online most places, but it's a little relative humidity one. It's got a little smiley face or a sad face uh, and then a neutral face. And it if it tells you if it's wet or dry or just average. And then it calculates over 24 24 hour period the relative humidity high and the low and then also the high temperature. So I I always say listen, you've got to learn to live in your house. It's when it becomes vapor permeable, it's essentially a living breathing uh, structure. So by placing a few of these thermometers around the house and particularly in the coldest corner and the lowest corner, you know, let's see what's going on there. So if you see eight degrees centigrade in the corner, the coldest spot of your house and, you know, 95% relative humidity, then you go, okay, wow, we're going to have a problem there. So now we can actually do something about that. So I feel like that's, it's not necessary that homeowners could fully understand the complexities of that but it gives them the tools to get some understanding that actually I do have a little bit of control over what's going on in my house. And particularly, you mentioned a thing that I wanted to just pick up on about the builders. So I have found quite a lot of feedback from customers of ours who say, oh, the builders don't really want to do it, or they've just said, oh, there's no point in doing that wood fibre insulation. it will just put in fibreglass or a synthetic. Or, oh, we don't need to worry about taping the membranes on the outside, for example. We've never done that before. And it now that's nothing new. Like I, We used to experience that all the time in the UK, that people think you've got two heads when you start talking about vapour permeability and thermal bridging and, like, does it matter to use that screw over that screw? And that's just people don't understand it. But it's important for homeowners to quest, have those questions again. Like, just please remember that. Don't, don't just take you know, a throwaway comment, oh, no, we're not, we don't need to worry about that. This is how we're going to build it. It's like, no, you know, say, so listen, I'm worried about the relative humidity. worried about the temperature. I don't want that cold spot in the corner of my bedroom. Um, and, you know, I want to make sure moisture is dealt with properly. And if the builder doesn't understand it, you can educate them. And that's partly what my role would be and your role as well. We, you know, we're not just educating the homeowners, it's, it's the trades involved as well, that we want them to be part of the journey and, Real and people get it, you know, when you as soon as when you like the coffee pot thing, you show people that oh, no way, I never that makes total sense, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, the thing is that in some locations of Australia, you don't even need to put sarking on the roof framing, you know, like the legislation is so far behind what good building practices are to create a high performance home and when we say high performance because I think a lot of people hear high performance and they think oh, like the Ferrari of homes or the Porsches of homes you know in terms of high performance cars what we're talking about is a building that's just able to um, manage its, uh, its thermal quality be high quality in terms of long lasting and durable and not cause you massive headaches in terms of um the potential deterioration that things like condensation and mold can create in the building fabric that mean that the home just doesn't last as long as it needs to and it makes you sick as well so you know high performance i think it's interesting because it's language that's so used so regularly in the industry at the moment but i kind of feel i feel like homeowners assume that the building codes stand for best practice and they don't they stand for bare minimum and and um best practice is actually high performance high performance isn't a luxurious thing. It's actually just what your home needs to be to justify the expense that you're putting into it and the fact that you're expecting it to last for a few decades. Um, So, and for it to be somewhere comfortable to live, that doesn't cost you a fortune to heat and cool. So I think that, you know, it's, it's tricky because a lot of this language that we use, I reckon a lot of homeowners will go, well, you know, I have so many homeowners say to me, Oh yeah, I really want to do passive house. And then they start down the road and, They end up doing Passive House, but they don't get it certified. And so because it felt like it was too far a stretch to go the full hog. Um, But Passive House is one of those things where if you're going to do it, you may as well do it the whole hog because then at least you have the mechanisms and the reporting systems and the documentation on the builder's end. that it is as being built as per the design and the modelling. The same thing goes with your uh, mainstream construction and adhering to the National Construction Code and Australian Standards and Building Codes or wherever you're located and what those codes are. The thing is that a lot of this, uh, a lot of information is in the codes and in the reporting and doing your NATHERS modelling and those kinds of things, but it's just that builders don't build uh, they don't install insulation correctly or they don't, like you say, use proper vapor probium membranes and and tape the joints and those kinds of things because they've never been trained that that's actually what's required to achieve what was designed. So, you know, so it's it's things like using the wood fiber insulation where it's literally foolproof in terms of the tongue and groove joints and the um, the inert uh, fixings and um, and using systems like this that actually set the builder up for greater success so that you're not worrying then about fiberglass insulation going in and there being a gap that then is going to reduce or somebody stuffing up and creating a thermal bridge between inside and outside accidentally you know Um, when you use construction systems that simplify the achievement of that high quality building envelope and that thermally protective building envelope, um, you actually streamline the success of your home far better. So, and I think when you're having conversations with builders and they go, well, we don't do that, don't, you know, or you don't need it. Like you say, asking why, but it also being a good first red flag of is this the right builder for me and perhaps I should start having conversations with other builders who are interested in this, who are seeing that this is the way that they, you know, when I was talking to um, Jeremy Spencer, he was talking about the importance of risk management as builders and understanding that you actually want to manage your risk because if you've promised a home that thermally works and, they've desi- and a homeowner has gone to the effort of designing a home that's seven stars or eight stars, you you do run the risk of at some point there being an opportunity for that homeowner in the future to come and actually test, has that home been built, the eight-star home that they designed? And if it wasn't, you as the builder are at fault. So how, you know, how do you as a builder set up practices to ensure that you're actually delivering what the homeowner's invested in in the first place? And as a homeowner, how do you work with builders so that you know you're getting what you're paying for? So I think it's really interesting to sort of think about those different you know, how you elicit that in those interviews with builders, with the professionals mm. you're working with, and that kind of stuff. So mm. did you have anything to add to that about moisture control before we move on to overheating?
1: Um I don't think so. I think, yeah, I think um,
0: we've I think we've covered it. And I'll I'll make sure that the the that graph, because it's a really good graph, that image of showing where the relative humidity sits and things like bacteria, viruses, fungi, mites, respiratory infections you know, allergic rhinitis and asthma, chemical interactions, ozone production, how that it's quite interesting how, like you said, that 40 to 50 to 60 is the sweet spot of preventing a lot of that stuff. So getting an understanding using those thermometers. And I think if you're preparing for a renovation to be able to invest in studying your house uh, and seeing where the failure points are before you sort of embark is um, is, is, is is so worthwhile. So um, that's definitely a good idea. So, all right, let's jump into overheating control. And this one, um, and as you say, these all work together. So it's something to be aware of in terms of how these all integrate in the systems that you choose for your home. So overheating, we're looking at thermal mass, um, yeah, and thinking about thermal mass, thermal conductivity, high heat storage, capacit- cap- capabilities, you know, all of that kind of stuff. You know, most people when they hear thermal mass, they're going to think, solid masonry materials concrete they're not going to think that something lightweight like um like a wood fiber product could possibly deal with thermal mass so we're we're going to have a chat about that um you know it's interesting you, you then think about you know um not necessarily everything heavy has good thermal mass as well, so or low thermal conductivity, so you know, those things through, and then decrement delay, so I'm really looking forward to you being able to explain in a really simple fashion what decrement delay is, because it's terminology, I think homeowners need to start wrapping their heads around, because it is something you can actually um, read as as an assessment on tested products, and start to actually see as a metric, Um, but it's only valuable obviously for you if you understand what it means. So can you talk through forest thermal mass first and just understanding how thermal mass works and, and uh, you know, why something like wood fiber in, you know, products are surprisingly good in this regard and, um, mm. and what people need to understand about thermal mass versus thermal conductivity.
1: Yeah. So this, hopefully be to explain this fairly simply. So
0: James is normally like James normally. I'm going to say to the audience, James is like a king when it comes to visual presentations. And I've taken away all of his crutches by saying to him now need you to explain this, mate. Yeah, yeah. And it works for audio. So
1: no, it's good. It's a good challenge. Yep. Always like challenges. <laughs> um, so I suppose let's start with what people currently understand of thermal mass. You've already highlighted it. Dense materials, concrete heavy structures and I want to support that and say yes that is correct um, but I want to raise an additional dimension to thermal mass that people haven't thought of so I want you to now think and visualize in your mind two completely separate environments you've got an internal environment and you've got an external environment the concrete and the density of that thermal mass goes to the internal environment and that's where people traditionally talk about like a store a battery store that we use solar passive design to heat heat a slab or heat a block wall and um, to retain some of that heat um, so that work that works well in that context but you've also got the external environment and i can send you a pdf on this so you can you can kind of peruse that and like most of the things i try and do it's one page So, as you can appreciate, it's very difficult to try and get this kind of information into one page. And I don't make it one page to belittle the complexity of it or undermine the value of it. I I do it because I want, I feel it's important that everybody should have some degree of accessibility into this information. And partly that, you know, it is accessible, and I don't want people to feel like, well, you know, Somebody's got a monopoly on the information and therefore we have to pay through the nose to get it or access it. It's It should be, it's common sense and a lot of it's basic high school science as well. It's not anything wildly, wildly complicated. Um, it becomes complicated when you're trying to, you know, bring it into what we're talking about. So thermal mass, internal environment, external environment, the wood fibre, is great for the thermal mass for the external environment because of its ability to absorb heat. It takes a lot less heat to change its temperature than concrete, which is why concrete is often talked about as a good heat store because it takes a lot of of the sun's heat to warm it up, to warm it up, to warm it up. Whereas the wood fibre is almost the opposite of that. And I've got a great um, a great demonstration that I did with a fire pit. So it's it's totally untested. It's not clinical in any way, just a bit of fun in a a very loose real world situation. Um, Because quite often houses aren't in a clinical test environment. Um, And it shows how actually the wood fiber is incredibly good at buffering that heat compared to the concrete. So the concrete takes a lot more heat to change its temperature. But because it's highly conductive it passes through the concrete a lot quicker so the 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 reverse side uh, of the concrete or or essentially the speed at which uh, the concrete releases some of that heat is a lot quicker than the wood fiber um and this is where it gets complicated so in the the chart i'll send you i've basically highlighted i think is six key criteria of thermal mass and there's there's complicated sounding terms like volumetric heat capacity um, and things like that and the thermal diffusivity, and but it's all it all fairly self-explanatory. So this now ties into decrement delay, which is in a simple phrase, how long it takes the sun's heat to pass through a material. So as an example, roof tin within five minutes has already completely overheated and conducted that heat all the way through. So the the space behind that roof tin now becomes excessively overheated. So the idea of external thermal mass is to reduce and delay how long it takes for that sun's heat to pass through to the inside of your house. Because obviously we want, back to the question of, do you want to spend thousands of dollars cooling your property The answer is no, I don't, because electricity is expensive and it's only getting more expensive. So we'll delay it. So the decrement delay is done with wood fibre. And I would say that wood fibre is pretty much the only material uh, on the market that can do that efficiently when it's linked to the other aspects as well. Because you might be able to get an incredibly good insulation, but it might not be very permeable. Then you might be able to get an incredibly good insulation but the density of it is non-existent so therefore the effect the ability of that material to delay the heat becomes weaker and weaker so the wood fiber has got incredibly high density it's got incredibly low thermal conductivity it's got incredibly high specific heat capacity uh, and then the vapor the vapor openness of the material is, is high as well so those four factors together enable wood fibre to provide the most balanced and the most stable uh, solution for overheating control. So, yeah, that's probably uh, hopefully a good explanation of thermal mass and and decorant delay.
0: Gotcha. So if I can just play devil's advocate, one of the things that people often think about when it comes to thermal mass is, uh, so for example, slab on ground. So in a warm climate, where your, um, you know, where your predominant goal is to keep your home cool, you would shade your, um, you design your home for orientation. So you'd be shading the house during uh, summer, so that then basically the slab stays in contact with the ground temperature, not with the dramatically increasing external air temperature. It keeps the slab um, fairly even. And then uh, across the course of the day, um, that slab then works to maintain the coolness of the indoor air um, and uh, helps with management of the thermal comfort overall. In a cold climate, you would... um, uh, probably insulate the underside of the slab, and you would where your predominant goal is to keep your interiors warm. You would be then obviously soaking as much, um, and I'm being very, very black and white here and very simplistic, but you would be aiming to obviously uh, get as much warmth of the sun to, to warm up that slab, plus any heating that you did internally to really warm up that slab. So then, as the temperatures drop. Even further, at the end of the day, the warmth of that slab emits uh, warm air back into the internal environment. So that that kind of thing and thinking about the management of that air um, and it happening through virtue of the material itself, how does the wood fibre sitting on the – and this may sound like a silly question, but if the wood fibre is on the outside, it's got low thermal conductivity – good thermal mass, how, how does that work to, are you still then relying on it working in partnership with, you know, things like using other thermal mass, like your um, you know, your, your, your floor construction, you know, highly insulated floor construction or, you know, how, how do you think about that? And I know this is probably going to relate back to that tea cozy conversation that we had right at the beginning. Like, how do you think about that as a building system because I can imagine it's really counterintuitive to think of something like those wood fiber panels, they're not heavy things. So how, how, like it feels very, it feels kind of hard to think about the fact, well, in a warm climate where I'm wanting to keep my house cool, how's this thing that can heat up quickly going to enable me to do that? Is it cause it works as a good insulator. And so I'm designing for, Orientation to keep my and I'm shading my home and that's what's going to feed its ability to insulate and keep the hot air from entering the house, you know that kind of stuff. um And then and then the the hot the warm the cold climate where you're thinking about wanting to keep any heat that you are managing to generate through solar passive design and through heating the home, you're wanting to keep that in, but you've got this you know lightweight sort of not not thermally a thermal mass but lightweight product that's ins- like how yeah can you can you i've sort of asked obviously a lot of questions in there but yeah 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 it's like it would sound counterintuitive to most that this light thing can have thermal mass how yeah. can you explain that yeah can you yeah can you, i'll try yeah. my
1: best yeah i yeah. think so volumetric heat capacity is important in this regard so per per kilogram concrete has obviously got a lot more volume so that's partly why and I said before, it takes a lot more heat to change its temperature uh, because there's more volume to it. Um, but that can mean that if you don't balance it where you're protecting that slab from getting too much heat, um, then you're going to get too hot. So later in the day, and you can often feel this on, on bricks on a house. So when the sun's been out for most of the day, you get to maybe six o'clock at night, and the sun started to drop in the sky, it starts to feel a bit chilly. But if you're going to stand next to your brick wall, you can feel a nice radiant heat coming off it. And you go, okay, great. Um, but if, if you let too much heat get to the concrete slab, then you can create too much of an issue where internally you're then going, oh man, it's too hot, and now I need to try and drop the temperature. But you'll struggle to drop the temperature eff- effectively because the concrete has stored an excessive amount of heat so let me tell you a story about a solar passive designed farmhouse that we went to um, in the hinterland and felt pretty exciting, sustainable build, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, this was in winter time. solar passive design house, loads of stone walls internally to, for thermal mass so that it would absorb some of the heat, concrete slab. So we got there freezing cold apps. It was absolutely bitterly cold inside, like uncomfortably. So Where straight away. Like we all put coats, jumpers on and I even was wearing a hat in, in internally, which i have not done for years <laughs> <laughs> live, where we live now is right on the, the, the East coast near Byron Bay. So it's pretty mild most of the year. Um, and in the UK I used to wear thermal underwear eight months of the year similar reason so there was a fireplace we got the fireplace absolutely cranking but even after four or five hours of the fireplace roaring at full pelt we were sat two to three meters away still in jumpers and hats and socks on the feet now that shouldn't that's not a, an enjoyable experience to live in because yes you get oh that's the fire's nice look at it. it looks great you know glass of red wine middle of winter feel all awesome snug and cozy epic but literally the fire drops even by 10 degrees and straight away you're freezing cold because that's not enough energy. And the sunlight during the day wasn't enough. Too much of the slab was protected. So actually the bulk of the slab wasn't receiving enough heat for it to change its temperature. And once it's cold because it's so poor at thermal conductivity or now the other way around, it's highly conductive, um, so therefore, it means that once it's cold, it is freezing cold. So that's a really important thing to understand, that you can't I feel like people want to, as human beings, naturally default to this black and white, literal interpretation of things. So thermal mass, concrete, okay, we've got a concrete slab, all good. But then forget, again, to, to link it back to everything we've been talking about today so far. We have to connect it with all of it. So thermal mass on its own is completely ineffective. Thermal mass in in the context of a a well-designed building and a well-insulated, thermally-wrapped wall structure means that the wood fibres protecting the wall and the roof from taking on too much heat. And then the low-level heat that you can get into the slab through the day through various windows. And then at night, just the... The fact that your building's well insulated and it's airtight, but it's using vapor permeable materials and good ventilation systems means that once you've achieved a nice temperature internally, the concrete will take that on as a mass and then help to work as part of the system. So if you try and remove it and isolate any of those elements, you can get into trouble, which in the context of that that solar passive design house, the trouble is it's absolutely terrible would I go back there? Probably not because it mm. wasn't wasn't nice because you go it looks beautiful. When the fire's is cranking it's beautiful but you know two o'clock in the morning it's like yeah. just not enjoyable. So, yeah,
0: which by contrast like we renovated a house in Brisbane that was a 1960s home that was slab on ground for sort of two thirds of the house and it didn't have any North facing windows. So part of the renovation was that we completely opened up the North wall, added in, you know, big sort of um, bifold doors, outdoor area on that side. So it totally changed how the winter sun could get in. And I felt that that, that floor pretty much stayed the same temperature year round. Um, And, but it, like you say, it was doing what it needed to in terms of how it, access the sunlight and you can have too much thermal mass in a home so it's a case of you know um, really thinking about how that works in partnership with the various things that we've been going through I'm just looking at your um, information so you've got your heat storage capacity wood fiber has a high thermal mass as the heat storage capacity is 2100 joules per kilogram whereas concrete is only 960 joules per kilogram which is really interesting so that speaks to what you were talking about in terms of um, how the concrete performs and, and then you've got and
1: actually let me just jump in on that yeah. as well to say specific heat capacity which is what that is is different to heat capacity and that's something that people get confused about with thermal mass as well but, and That and that relates to so the heat capacity is how much heat is required to change its temperature and um, whereas specific heat capacity. Is related to essentially how much, uh, how much heat a product can take on before it starts to release it. Ah, okay. and, the, and the higher, the higher that the higher that number, the better. So in terms of specific heat capacity, wood fiber, as you can see there, at the two thousand one hundred joules per kilogram, is a lot better than the concrete. Whereas yeah. the concrete is a lot better at heat capacity than wood fiber. So yeah, see, gotcha. it, it, it is quite confusing that but it's important to differentiate.
0: I know I can hear homers going oh my gosh I need a science to go do this but it's I think like just knowing okay when you can start looking at at things like that specific heat capacity I mean to know that one that the higher that is the better the material is going to perform that's a really good rule of thumb in terms of thinking about how to sort of assess materials and things like that and so and then you've got your thermal conductivity. You've got that your rigid board fiber, because you've obviously got a few different products. So your rigid board, rigid wood fiber board has a low thermal conductivity of um, 0.041 watts per, what's MK stand for?
1: Meter Kelvin meter Kelvin. Kelvin is like the temperature difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then you've got your flex wood fiber bulk infill is 0.036 watts per meter Kelvin, whereas concrete. So we've got 0.041 and 0.036. The thermal conductivity of concrete is 1.5. So that's, you know, what four times um, and five times, something like that. So it's, it's definitely worth no, even more than that. My maths is, is that 40 times? And yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like yeah, it's a lot of difference. And you wouldn't have ever thought concrete as being a thermally conductive material. So, but no. it's, yeah, it's, um, it's um, definitely worth obviously considering that. Now, um, the decrement delay, I think, is something obviously to think about for homeowners, as you said, it's how long for it takes for that sun's heat to pass through the surface of a building. Um, and so, how, in terms of thinking about decrement delay, is that something that links into our values for insulation, or how how do people sort of start to understand how decrement delay might get measured or seen as identified as a line item on insulation materials? Yeah, or- no,
1: this is this is the fascinating thing. So, I called up two or three of the leading insulation supplies in australia essentially the competition to myself (laughs) and and asked to speak to the technical department i said okay i'd love to know what the specific heat capacity is of your material please what what are you talking about never heard of it then okay well what's the vapor diffusion resistance coefficient which is basically the vapor permeability again what are you talking about never heard of it it's got an r value of two mate that's it and the thermal conductivity of this so actually the thermal conductivity of a a regular insulation that you would buy off the shelf might be typically 0.045 and thermal conductivity, the lower, the better. So as as you can see, our flexible insulation is 0.036. So even though that sounds like a a small amount, that's actually quite a big jump in terms of performance. All insulations are genuinely good at thermal conductivity, uh, but then it's the other aspects. So, the, the, the decrement delay and the r value is that's the first question everybody asks what's the r value and i'll, I'll send you a, a pdf that's called performance evaluation so what i've done is taken a polystyrene insulation like an eps uh, a fiberglass insulation polyester insulation and compared it to our insulation and also concrete and rammed earth and hemp construction to show those four criteria, the densities of the materials, the thermal conductivities of the materials, the specific heat capacities of the materials, and the vapor diffusion, because you need that balance of the four. And what it shows is an R-value of two on a fiberglass insulation has only got a density of 10 kilograms per meter, meter cubed, whereas the rigid wood fiber can Hang on, say that again. A, a, an R2 fiberglass yep. has got a density of 10 kilograms yep the rid the 60 mil rigid wood fiber has got an r value of r1.45 so it's less Mm -hmm. r value but the density is 160 to 180 kilograms per meter cubed so that's more than 10 10, that's more than 10 times the density wow so that's quite a massive massive leap
0: How's the R value factored? Like how does the R value the and the R, density yeah,
1: then? The R value is basically the thermal resistance of a material.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's fine on its own, but it doesn't it doesn't connect to the specific heat capacity, the conductivity or the density or the vapor diffusion of the material. So you have to you can't just look at it as a packet and go, it's R2, that's all good. Because an R2 insulation. And I do I do a, a heat lamp experiment in the workshops, and show within five minutes something crazy like twenty percent of heat has travelled through a polyester insulation with a higher R value than the wood fiber that's got a lower R value. So that's yeah,
0: insane. It's
1: crazy. Yeah.
0: Huh? Yeah. That's so okay. So when you're Let's jump on to talking more about insulation generally because I know that you share a lot of information about insulation and how to assess insulation. Everybody I know when they're designing and building and renovating their homes, you know, insulation becomes part of the conversation in terms of, you know, wanting to improve the energy efficiency of their home, thinking about increasing the star rating of it, upgrading insulation beyond what's standard, like this is kind of often the conversations homeowners are having with me. Oh, I'm just going to bump up to the next R value or I've asked my energy efficiency assessor to look at, you know, what happens if we add insulation in the walls as well as the roof, you know, what, what, what we need to do in terms of that. What I loved when I was looking through your information is you've talked about the multiple roles of insulation. And this is something that homeowners are talking to me about too, because a lot of people are wanting to work out how to acoustically protect their home as well. So they're looking at thermal insulation as one bucket of stuff, and then they're looking at acoustic insulation as another bucket of stuff. So, you know, and not thinking that the acoustic insulation could do the job of the thermal insulation as well, you know, and how could you get one product that does it all? So, You've obviously got uh, durability, sustainability, thermal, acoustic, fire protection, health, comfort, and buildability. So they're the different roles of insulation. I'm going to say that again. Durability, sustainability, thermal, acoustic, fire protection, health, comfort, and buildability. So the buildability one's an interesting one because you know we know that if insulation isn't installed properly, it's might as well not be there so okay. i think um jenny edwards from lighthouse architecture and science talks about you know a five mil gap in insulation can reduce its effectiveness by up to 50 percent you know they there's a lot of architects and designers and builders now factoring thermal imaging cameras into their construction process so that they can see whether there's insulation weak points the importance of insulation installers are actually correctly installing insu- insulation so that's, you know, obviously one thing and we talked earlier about how great the wood fibre products that Life panels do are because they are easy to install in a foolproof way that improves the, the performance of the insulation. We've then got um, obviously durability is another one. So you will have obviously examined the performance of different insulation bats you know, uh, fiberglass and those kinds of things and how they perform over time potentially break down and what that means for the reduction in their ability to perform. Can you talk through that in terms of homeowners thinking about and understanding the durability of the insulation that they're selecting? Because a lot of people will go, well, actually one way I might improve the insulation of my home is I'm just going to double bat it and put two layers of insulation on top. But then of course the compression is going to challenge their performance over time. So can we just talk about that and perhaps how wood fibre sort of feeds into considering that durability mm. conversation?
1: Yeah, so that's exactly right. That in synthetic insulations will generally, as a rule, sag under their own weight. So you've already mentioned the five mil gap there and the inefficiency of that. So let's assume that the tradesperson installs the fibreglass insulation 100% accurately everywhere with no gaps anywhere. That's highly unlikely that will happen, but let's assume that they do that within about six months. It will have generally have sagged under its, own, under its own weight and the gap will be bigger than five mil. It could even be 40 mil, 50 mil. So therefore, the efficiency of it drops dramatically. Uh, it's partly down to the density of the material. So the denser that you, you will get a material, the more kind of um, self-supporting it would be. So the wood fiber is highly is high density. So for the life of the building, it won't sag under its own weight. So assuming that it's been installed correctly, and it's actually not that difficult to install it correctly. When because of how uh, solid it is, um, slightly different thought process with it than than what people are used to. We've just oh we'll just throw it in. And I've seen, as you probably have, thousands of chit rock uh, teams on site just like slicing it. Stuffing it in, ripping it with the hands, stuff a bit in there. You know, it's all squashed in, or it's you know huge gaps because they don't actually understand what the insulation is. It's just, you know, it says on the plans, "I'll oh, get it in, get it done, that's it." um So there's that side of it. So the wood fiber is super stable; won't sag under its own weight. Then also, it's the ability of the material to handle the moisture. So it's a bit of an extreme example, but what I did on on one of our Instagram posts was I got same size little piece of wood fiber and the same size piece of a fiberglass, Uh, slightly different R values. I think the wood fiber is a slightly higher R value. Uh, And then I put them both in a bucket of water for maybe a minute. If that took them both out. And as you'd expect, they're both absolutely saturated. It's like fully dripping off both hands, photographed it. And then I measured them over the course of, uh, well, it ended up being two weeks, but within 24 to 36 hours, the wood fiber had released all of the moisture and gone back down to its safe levels. And it rests anywhere between 7% to 18% moisture, depending on what's going on. And that's deemed as, as satisfactory. Uh, that was that was back to normal and totally dry within 24 to 36 hours. And it maintained its shape. The fiberglass in comparison completely lost its shape over two weeks later it was still absolutely saturated to the point where the the, the moisture, the meter reader that couldn't read it, it was off the chart. So, the point I know that's an extreme example, and you'd never necessarily have that exact context in a building, but what you will have in a building is silver foil sarkings or foam insulations that aren't able to handle moisture control and will take moisture on and will stay wet in that wall space because the, the vapor is not being released. Um, and so that's a massive problem. And that's why the synthetic insulations, they sag under their own weight, but they also can't handle moisture. So their performance deteriorates, deteriorates, deteriorates. And you see it, even the warehouse I've got here, the ceiling's got the, the anticon, the silver foil uh, wrapped around a, a fiberglass. And it's only 10 years old and the whole thing's disintegrating uh, in the roof, constantly dropping onto the floor. So it's completely ineffective. And it's and it's short-sighted because is it really our values? I think that's what we even put on the post. You know, this is the this is the results. Should we be asking better questions than is it about what's the R value of the material? And I think that's that's the key message for me, this education around ask questions. Let's not just view things in black and white that, oh well, that says it's got R3, so therefore I'll just get some more fiberglass and whack it in. Because then, because actually just doing that, you could actually create more of a problem because of the air tightness aspect. So going back to the analogy of the British houses, the fireplaces, you can't just put more insulation in it and it'd be all good. And that's one of my fears for the Australian market that, you know, that takes a lead from what they did in the UK, which was exactly that. We need to insulate, you know, government schemes, government grants get released, you know, billions of dollars. So people then trained to be an energy assessor or, you know, a, a, an installer of insulation because they're, they're just in it to make a quick dollar and it's the latest scheme. They fail to recognise why they're putting the insulation in. No one's linked the fact that more insulation is going to cause more of an issue because they've removed, you know, the, the ability of the house to dry out because the fireplaces are all gone. So now just moisture, 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 moisture. And that's my fear for the Australian market, that, that the more people talk about insulation, but don't connect it to vapour permeability, don't connect it to air tightness, don't connect it to good ventilation, Um, then just the whole thing is just going to become another 15 years from now, it'll be, oh, there's all these problems with even more damp and even more mould. Yeah, you just got mouldy
0: sponges in your roofs and your walls. So, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a tricky one. And I really appreciate you taking us through all of that because um, I think that thinking about that durability, like you're going to invest in it. And so knowing that it's actually not just going to be great when it goes in, but actually in 5, 10 years, it's going to still be delivering the thermal performance that you were, was the whole reason that you bought it for. They say that in Europe, you know,
1: they say if you build a wood fiber house in Europe, 50 years, 80 years, 100 years from now, that building will still perform at the same energy level as the day you installed it. Simple as that whereas the equivalent is 10, 20 years, and you'd be ripping it down because it's ineffective. And actually, in the UK, they talked about these energy targets that were going to introduce more schemes to encourage homeowners to improve the performance of the houses. But actually, if you were already, um, let's say, 10 steps ahead of that proposed future plan, firstly, it saved you money because you weren't having to worry about it. Secondly, you weren't penalised for having a poorly efficient house. So actually, just the basic wood fiber system that we talk about, if people in Australia were doing that, they're already going to be 10, 20 years ahead of performance criteria through, through those four um, aspects of insulation that we talked about. So that's something to consider that it's, I think that's the hardest challenge, hey, that everybody's focused on the immediate. And the immediate black and white the immediate dollar value and and the lack of understanding as well around all these topics we talked about means that people can't see that connection between well i should spend x amount on getting the fabric right and 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 worry about the you know the the upgrade of the kitchen and the bathroom and the bench top we'll do that later or you know it's 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 a funny challenge
0: yeah most definitely and that's it for part two of my conversation with James. Look, these are big topics we're diving into. And I know, look, they can feel like a lot, can't they? It can feel like you're having basically a massive science lesson in, in, in home construction. Um, but I do hope that this is arming you with some useful information that you ultimately can be discussing with your design team and your builder to ensure that you're getting the best outcome for your home and your location. This is stuff that some industry professionals don't understand so you knowing this knowing what these these things are knowing this terminology it's just going to be so helpful for you making sure that you're getting the right information and the right advice for your own home now in the next episode we're going to wrap up my conversation with James we're going to talk more about insulation and in particular about acoustic insulation and about insulation for fire protection which is going to be super useful because you can get one product to do your thermal insulation your acoustic insulation and your fire protection if you need to. Now, you're also gonna understand why the R value isn't the only figure to pay attention to when you're selecting your insulation and making sure that you're getting your money's worth when it comes to buying insulation for your home. And you're also gonna learn more about how James's uh, products that he supplies through life panels his wood fiber products how they're actually made uh, James is going to share more specific information about about uh, the products that life panels makes and, and imports and and what you need to know about them if you are interested in using them for your home. Now, remember, you can access a free downloadable PDF transcript for this episode. It includes all the resources that we've discussed. You can grab that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 235. That's the numbers 235. As always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time.